This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Enoch warned the giants and the watchers of the world, repent or feel God's wrath. They ignored his warning. The floodgates of heaven burst forth and water rushed over the earth, destroying everything. The only thing to survive is a single vessel, a huge ship, the Ark. Five months later, the waters recede and the Ark made ground on a mountaintop. A man named Noah emerged and civilization began again. Some version of the Noah's Ark story exists in almost every religion and every culture on Earth. But did Noah and the Ark really exist? Well, there's evidence that they did. So much evidence that it was classified by the CIA for almost 50 years. But why classify it? Well, there are two problems with the Noah's Ark story. One, the Ark is much older than anyone thought. And two, the man named Noah, he wasn't a man. At least, not a man from Earth. James Bruce was born to a wealthy Scottish family in 1730. His family wanted him to study law, but James Bruce had different plans. He had a dream. He wanted to be the first person to find the legendary source of the Nile River. Now this might sound like a mundane task, but for hundreds of years, the race to find the source of the Nile was as gripping as the race to put a man on the moon. Nobody won that race. What now? Nobody went to the moon. The whole thing was faked. I'm just saying the race to find the source of the Nile was a big deal. Then just say that. Don't give me some cockamamie nonsense about the race to the moon that never happened. I was just making a comparison. Well, you made it poorly. Bruce spent over a decade in Africa tracing the Nile. He traveled through war-torn deserts. He befriended several kings and made enemies of others. He fought savage tribes and survived deadly diseases. Nearly starving to death, James Bruce discovered a small spring. It was bubbling from the earth near a monastery in the Tigray Highlands of Ethiopia. This was it, the source of the Nile River. But Bruce discovered something else, something much more important. During his stay at the Ethiopian monastery, he saw an old faded manuscript on display. It was written in Giez, an ancient Semitic language used by Ethiopian Jews. James Bruce was told this book was the Bible, not a Bible, the Bible. Judaism in Ethiopia goes back almost 3,000 years. The Old Testament and Quran tell of the Ethiopian queen of Sheba who heard about the wisdom and wealth of King Solomon. She was intrigued by these reports and decided to travel to Jerusalem to meet him for herself. The specifics of their meeting were not specified, but the Queen of Sheba was so impressed, she praised the God of Israel and gave King Solomon many gifts. She brought caravans of gold, gems, and spices. King Solomon, grateful and equally impressed, gives the Ethiopian queen all that she asks, and then the queen returns home. In the Old Testament and Quran, that's where the story ends. But religious texts in Ethiopia go into much more detail. When the queen finally made it home, she learned that Solomon gave her one last gift, a son. Ah, King Solomon the player. Their son was Menelik I, 
When Menelik grew up, he returned to Jerusalem to meet his father. King Solomon was so happy to finally meet his son that he offered Menelik the throne. Menelik declined and chose to return home. But before Menelik left, some of his men stole the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Ethiopia. There's been a large Jewish population in Ethiopia ever since. According to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Ark of the Covenant is still in Ethiopia. It's in the town Aksum in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. And it's a great story, and if you want to hear it, I've linked it below. Back at the monastery, James Bruce was fascinated by these new texts. Bruce was a well-read, well-educated man, and he knew his scripture. But these Ethiopian texts contained hundreds of stories that weren't in the Bible. Not in his Bible, anyway. The Ethiopian Bible contains 81 books. The Catholic Bible removed eight of those books and contains only 73. The King James Bible, the one known to Bruce, has only 66 books. Bruce didn't understand. There was so much more detail in the older texts. People merely mentioned once or twice in the modern Bible had their entire lives documented in the Ethiopian Bible. Their lives, their families, their deeds, their misdeeds, they were all there. James Bruce didn't understand why so much of the original Bible was removed. And then he did. While thumbing through the stiff, dusty pages, Bruce came across the Book of Enoch. James Bruce knew Enoch as the great-grandfather of Noah. He was mentioned a few times in the Bible, but only in passing. Here was an entire book on Enoch, 108 chapters. Now James Bruce understood why the church wanted this book hidden. It described heaven not just as a spiritual place, but as a physical place that could be visited by men. That was heresy. No mortal man is able to visit heaven, and certainly not able to visit and return. But Enoch did, and he wrote down everything he saw. He didn't describe heaven as souls floating in the clouds playing harps. He describes it as a city in the sky with many different rooms with walls covered in gems of blinking lights and godlike beings going about their business. Now, Enoch wouldn't have known it at the time, but he was describing a spacecraft. The Book of Enoch vanished from history thousands of years ago, only to be rediscovered in 1772 by James Bruce. While the Book of Enoch was certainly interesting, it was dismissed by Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and not considered part of the Bible. After all, it was hidden away on a mountain in Ethiopia. How important could it really be? If the Book of Enoch was truly scripture, there would be more copies of it, but there weren't. But 150 years later, that would change. In 1947, near the ancient settlement of Qumran, a young shepherd happened upon a cave. He was looking for a stray goat and thought it could have wandered in. The boy tossed a rock in the cave, hoping to scare the goat out. Instead, he heard the sound of pottery breaking. Within the cave were clay jars filled with ancient scrolls, almost a thousand manuscripts. The scrolls cover every part of the Hebrew Bible, and there amongst the well-known books was the Book of Enoch. In fact, in ancient times, the Book of Enoch was so widely read and regarded, 11 copies of it were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were intact, complete, and perfectly matched the text of the Ethiopian Bible. Still, the Book of Enoch is considered apocryphal and not part of the Bible. Apocryphal is a nice way of saying it's fake. Some even consider the Book of Enoch to be heresy, a crime against God. When you read the book, you can understand why. Enoch may actually be the first case of alien abduction ever documented. One evening, there's a strange sound above Enoch's village. It's not thunder or wind. It's a sound that seems to make the air and earth vibrate. It's a sound that can be felt. 
The villagers cautiously come out of their homes and see a bright orb of light hovering just above the trees. Slowly, the sphere of light descends upon the village. The townspeople are terrified, but Enoch hears a voice tell him to not be afraid. Enoch then ascends to heaven, escorted by a celestial being named Uriel. Something similar happens to the prophet Elijah in Two Kings. Elijah is physically taken to heaven in what he calls a chariot of fire. Do, 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 do. What? It's easy to see that a man living thousands of years ago would describe a rocket or a spacecraft as a chariot of fire. That's enough. Okay, okay, sheesh, what a grouch. In Abrahamic religions, souls of the righteous go to heaven after death. Maybe Jesus takes them by the hand, maybe they follow a loved one through the light, or maybe they just arrive there. This is not what happens to Enoch. Like Elijah, Enoch is physically taken to heaven and writes down everything he sees. He doesn't write this from memory. He's literally walking around with Uriel writing things down. He was instructed to do so by God. And although Enoch describes this journey in religious language, he's also pretty scientific. He describes seeing mountains below. He sees every river on earth. He describes seeing how the winds are made, possibly referring to cloud formations. Enoch sees all of this as divine, but his account could be referring to technology. A smartphone would seem supernatural to someone living thousands of years ago. A spaceship would be incomprehensible. When Enoch arrives in heaven, the mothership, he's shown a bunch of doors. He calls them 12 gates. Each door has a name and a purpose. He sees beings walking in and out of the doors, going about their business. Enoch calls these beings angels and archangels. Like Uriel, they radiate light. It's been suggested that these beings could be holographic projections. Though they're extremely bright, Enoch can see through them. Enoch is then taken on a tour of the cosmos. He travels the galaxy. He's shown the movement of celestial bodies. He's told about man's place in the universe. Uriel teaches Enoch about the solar system. He's told the length of an Earth year is 364 days. He's shown the lunar cycle. He's shown how constellations move across the sky. This is interesting because the Book of Enoch was written thousands of years before many of these discoveries were made. Now you would think that there would be nothing above heaven, but wherever Enoch is, this place has a ceiling. Enoch specifically calls it a lofty roof. Enoch is taken to a giant room full of plants that he doesn't recognize. Uriel calls it one of the storehouses of nature. Now this could be an arboretum or a garden. When humans finally travel through space, there will definitely be gardens on their ships. Enoch is shown an object with writing on it he calls the Book of Life. He says this records all the deeds of man. It sounds like the angel works for the FBI. Right. The Book of Life is essentially a database of surveillance records. There's a room for the wicked. Enoch describes it as a place of torture and mutilation. But this room has also been interpreted as where alien abductees endure experiments. Finally, Enoch enters the room with the throne of God. He said there's no way to describe or comprehend him. He averts his eyes. God tells Enoch the secrets of the angels and the nature of the universe. He shows Enoch the different dimensions of existence. He shows Enoch visions of the past, present, and the future. And that's when Enoch finally learns why he was summoned and told to write everything down. God needs a witness. He needs someone to describe what heaven and hell are like. 
someone whose words will be passed down for generations, so mankind has a written record of the afterlife. God also needs Enoch to deliver a message to some of God's angels on Earth. And the message is not good news. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. In the early days of the world, God sent 200 angels to Earth. Their purpose was to observe and guard humanity. They became known as the Watchers. Typically, angels are considered spiritual beings, but in the Book of Enoch, the Watchers are physical entities. They're described as large humanoids, some with wings, and they radiate so much light that it's difficult to look directly at them. The Watchers taught humans how to cultivate crops and create pottery. They taught humans about medicine and curing illness. The Watchers taught humans about astronomy and astrology. In ancient Sumerian texts, which Enoch is probably based on, 300 beings are sent to Earth from palaces in the sky. These beings are called the Observers. They, too, help humanity take a great leap forward. We see this story in ancient cultures all over the world. Advanced beings come down from the sky and bring humanity the gift of civilization. In the Book of Enoch, the Watchers helped humanity advance quickly and civilization spread. But the Watchers became vain and proud. They were instructed by God to withhold certain knowledge from man. The Watchers ignored these instructions. The Watchers taught men how to create new metals for weapons. They taught men how to harness fire and wage war. They taught women witchcraft and alchemy. The Watchers revealed the secrets of the heavens and changed the course of human development. They violated the Prime Directive. They did. This transfer of knowledge was a double-edged sword. While it propelled humanity forward, it also brought about corruption a deviation from God's order. The corruption didn't just affect men, it affected the Watchers as well. The Watchers were spending more and more time with human women. Uh-oh, this isn't gonna end well. The Watchers became lustful. Told ya. Then they started taking human women as wives for themselves. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Enoch chapter 6, verse 1. This part of the Enoch story has been interpreted as the human-alien hybridization program developed by the Anunnaki in Sumerian texts. In those stories, human women weren't being taken as wives, they were just being taken, abducted and used as incubators for a new species. This union of celestial and mortal bloodlines gave birth to a race of giants, the Nephilim. Another ancient text found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was called the Book of Giants. This book, along with the Book of Enoch, described the Nephilim as creatures of immense size and strength and immense cruelty. 
The Nephilim brought even more corruption and violence to the world. Torn between divinity and humanity without a home in either, they go insane. Soon they turn on humans and torture anyone they can find. The Nephilim needed to consume so much food that eventually they began feeding on human flesh. Humans are helpless to stop these advances. Many are enslaved by the powerful Nephilim. Many more are killed. Then a few humans decide to follow the example set by the Watchers. They think if angels can torture and kill and enslave and sleep with whoever they want, why can't we? Then the world becomes filled with people like this. Soon God can't tell who's a Nephilim and who isn't. Enoch delivers the message to the Watchers, to the Nephilim, and to all mankind. Repent for your sin or suffer the wrath of God. Enoch's warning is ignored. He's brought back to heaven where he begs God to help save the earth. So God makes a decision. The earth has become so corrupt and so foul that it needs to be reset. He will cause an event so cataclysmic that everything and everyone will be killed. Humans, angels, Nephilim, all of it, gone. But one man and his family will be spared. The only man who can't be corrupted. The only man who could be trusted to restart civilization. Enoch's great-grandson, Noah. But here's the thing. There's a lot more to Noah than we've been told. In the book of Enoch, we get the full story. In Genesis, God appears to Noah and says the world is to end. There will be a great flood that washes away every living thing so the world can start again. He commands Noah to build a large boat, an ark. This ark will hold Noah, his family, and two of every animal. In the ark, they'll survive the flood and live to see a new age on Earth. Everybody knows that story. But in Enoch, it happens a little bit differently. The book of Enoch describes Noah's birth. His body was as white as snow and red as the blooming of a rose, and the hair of his head and his long locks were white as wool and his eyes beautiful. And when opened his eyes, he lighted up the whole house like the sun, and the whole house was very bright. The Book of Noah, Book 3, Chapter 1. Noah is described as beautiful with bright glowing skin. And from the moment of birth, Noah can speak. Noah's father Lamech panics. Lamech had been away during the time Noah would have been conceived, so he knows the child isn't his. What's worse, Noah is radiating light. Lamech is worried that Noah is a watcher, or worse, Nephilim. Lamech seeks counsel from his father Methuselah. Also fearing the child could be a watcher, Methuselah prays to his own father, Enoch, who's been in heaven for many years. Enoch answers Methuselah. And now make known to thy son Lamech that he who has been born is in truth his son. And call his name Noah, for he shall be left to you. And he and his sons shall be saved from the destruction which shall come upon the earth on account of all the sin and all the unrighteousness which shall be consummated on the earth in his days. The Book of Noah, Book 3, Chapter 18. Lamech is relieved that Noah is truly his, but Noah was conceived while Lamech was away. In the Book of Enoch, this is a divine miracle, or it's technology, artificial insemination and genetic manipulation a successful human hybrid. Lamech also learns that a great flood is coming, and Noah has been chosen to restart civilization. In Genesis, God gives Noah instructions on how to survive. But the Book of Enoch tells it a little differently. The 
The story of Noah and the Flood is primarily found in the book of Genesis, chapters 6 through 9. This narrative is one of the most well-known in the Bible. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. But the book of Enoch tells it a little differently. First, it's Uriel who tells Noah about the flood, not God. And the intention of the flood is not to destroy all humans. According to the book of Enoch, the primary targets of the great flood are the fallen angels known as Watchers and their human hybrid offspring, the Nephilim. Most humans will also die, but this is considered necessary collateral damage. It's the only way to reset creation and wipe the slate clean. If some humans survive, great. If they don't, it doesn't matter. Only Noah matters. Noah was given specific instructions on how to build the ark and survive. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. This is a big ship, longer than a football field, almost 100 feet wide, and taller than a five-story building. It would need to be big because Noah had an additional responsibility. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. At this time in history, there were well over a million species of animals on Earth. Obviously, these wouldn't fit on the ark, but there are explanations and interpretations. The biblical interpretation is that Noah wasn't saving every breed of animal, just the type. So he wouldn't have brought any dogs. He would have brought a male and female gray wolf, and the wolves would eventually become dogs. They should have left the kids. Stop it. The vicious little hell beast they are. That's enough. What about huge animals like elephants? Those were definitely on the ark. Some biblical scholars say the animals delivered to Noah were infants, allowing a lot more to fit. But there is an ancient astronaut theory that says there were no animals on the ark at all. Instead, it contained DNA samples of all living creatures on Earth, essential for rebuilding civilization. Whether it was God's doing or not, the time finally arrived. The end of the world. Or the beginning. With Noah, his family, and the animals safely aboard the ark, the flood began. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. As the waters raged over the earth, anyone not on the ark drowned. It took five months for the water to recede, and another five or six months for the land to be dry enough to leave the ark. Noah and his family and the animals were on the ark for a full year. For thousands of years, believers and skeptics have debated the scale of the flood, or even if it occurred at all. Some have argued the biblical flood was not a global event, but a local one. The best known theory to support this is the Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. First proposed in 1997, it argues the Black Sea was a freshwater lake around 260 feet lower than it is today. 
It was cut off from the Mediterranean Sea by a rocky sill in the Bosphorus Strait. Then around 8,400 years ago, the Laurentide ice sheet collapsed, causing an abrupt sea level jump. This sent a catastrophic inflow of Mediterranean seawater over this natural dam and into the Black Sea. Almost 40,000 square miles of land were flooded. This significantly expanded the shoreline to both the north and the west. 200 times the flow of Niagara Falls poured through every day, and each day the level of the Black Sea rose several feet. And this continued for 300 days, creating the Black Sea as we know it today. Undersea surveys have revealed human-made structures. The remains of freshwater fish have also been found. The memory of this massive flood could have been passed down through the generations. Then it was finally documented in flood narratives found in both the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh and the Book of Genesis. So there's evidence of a local flood, which would have been the entire world to the people living there. But how about an actual global flood? A flood that affected every part of the earth? Skeptics claim the biblical flood could not have occurred because there's no actual evidence for a global flood. With all due respect, those skeptics are wrong. Many Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe the Great Flood is symbolic, an allegory to serve as a warning to mankind, be righteous or be destroyed. Others take the Bible literally and claim Noah was a real man who built a real boat to survive a real flood. What if they're both kind of wrong? What if there was a flood, but the man known as Noah is known by different names in different cultures? The ancient Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh is the first flood story. Utnapishtim is warned by the god Ea about a great flood. He builds a large boat to save his family and animals from the deluge sent by the god Enlil. And Enlil was also... Anunnaki! Right. In Hinduism, Manu, the first man, saves a fish who later warns him of a great flood. The fish instructs Manu to build a boat. And when the flood comes, the fish guides the boat to safety, carrying Manu, the seven sages, and the seeds of life. In Native American Ojibwe mythology, a great flood occurs. Nanabojo, a cultural hero, survives by floating in a boat along with various animals. And there is an Australian Aboriginal myth, Titilik. A giant frog drinks all the water in the world, causing a drought. When he releases the water, it causes a great flood. A boat is used to survive this deluge. The Chinese have the Gunyu flood myth, which cleansed the earth. The Inca myth tells of Virkocha, who floods the earth to destroy giants who have disobeyed his orders, sparing two to repopulate the earth. Nephilim. Could be. These stories go on and on. I specifically picked a few from cultures that are far away from each other, separated by oceans. In all, there are about 250 separate flood myths, but every story is eerily similar. For years, the similarities between these stories was considered coincidence. As people stepped forward to claim there really was a global flood, it was called pseudoscience. But as often happens, the only difference between pseudoscience and science is time. I think that the evidence is consistent with a what I will call a megascale pluvial event over North Africa, most likely consistent with the Pleistocene-Holocene transition and the great flooding events that we know are well documented from other places in the world. Huge tsunamis and torrential rain flooded the entire continent of Africa, reshaping the landscape. At the same time, on the other side of the world, the same event. Here what you have to visualize is a tsunami sweeping over the land that's over a thousand feet deep. 
That's that's what happened here. And we know that because we can trace the, the, the high water marks on the hillsides are clearly left. The high water marks are clearly etched into the into the hillsides. This is the great flood at the end of the Younger Dryas, where the ice caps suddenly melted and raised the sea level of the earth by hundreds of feet. Anyone living near a coastline would be gone. Any settlements or cities below a certain elevation would be destroyed. The cause of this event is still being debated. Some believe a large asteroid impact or series of impacts caused the sudden melting of the ice. Another theory, the one I believe, is that a massive solar flare hit the earth. This would cause the ice to melt everywhere at once and explain why flood myths exist in every corner of the world. Whatever caused it, it was a catastrophic event, an event of biblical proportions, literally. But there were survivors. Maybe not just Noah, maybe there were many Noahs. If an asteroid or solar flare hit, there wouldn't be much time to prepare, but there would be some time. Maybe groups of people anticipated the rising seas and built boats, or as some theorize, and many myths say, a being came down from the sky and warned people of the coming catastrophe. Those who heeded the warning would get to building boats right away. Those that survived passed down the story to their descendants. There could have been arcs all over the world. Or maybe there really was only one ark. And if there was, where is it? Does it still exist? Can it be found? For that answer, we turn to the CIA. Searches for Noah's Ark have been occurring since antiquity, but it was the emergence of biblical archeology span in the 19th century, which made the possibility of formal searches finally feasible. By the 1940s, expeditions were organized to follow up on potential leads. As for where the Ark came to rest, the book of Genesis gives us a hint. The waters kept receding steadily from the earth so that they had gone down by the end of the 150 days. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on one of the mountains of Ararat. Historians and biblical scholars agree, Ararat is the Hebrew name of Urartu, an Iron Age kingdom centered around Lake Van. This indicates the mountains of Ararat must be found in the eastern part of Turkey, near the border of Armenia, Iran, and Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan. What? Azerbaijan, it's fun to say. I guess. Azerbaijan, it feels really good in the mouth. Azerbaijan. Can I get back to this, please? Go ahead, I ain't stopping ya. On June, se- On June 17th, 1949, the US Air Force was photographing the mountains in eastern Turkey. On Mount Ararat was a rectangular barge-like structure west of the summit. This information was passed on to the CIA, who sent spy planes to analyze the object that they called the Ararat Anomaly. What they saw concerned them so much, they immediately classified it as secret. All subsequent photographs of the object taken in 1956, 73, 76, 1990, and 1992 were all classified. Over the next 45 years, all requests from within the government to see these photos were denied. The photos were never seen outside the CIA. In fact, for years, the CIA said the photos didn't exist at all. Thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, Six frames from the 1949 footage were released to the public in 1995. By 1999, the CIA finally made their Noah's Ark files available to the public. And these documents proved that the search for Noah's Ark had reached the highest levels of the American government. 
Later, higher resolution photos show no barge. The 1949 picture was most likely a rock formation. Maybe. Probably. Maybe. But the Ararat anomaly is not the only structure that looks like Noah's Ark. There is another, a ship made of solid stone. In October 1959, Turkish Army Captain Ilhan Darupinar was on a mapping mission for NATO. When he flew over Uzengeli, Turkey, he saw a strange formation and snapped a photo. When analyzing the film, he was shocked by what he saw. This structure looked a lot like a large ship. But what was a ship doing so far inland, at almost 7,000 feet above sea level? Then someone decided to measure it. It was 538 feet long. Now that's too big to be Noah's Ark. The Ark was 300 cubits long, so 450 feet. But wait, the length of the cubit changed over time. The length of the cubit that Moses used to build the Ark of the Covenant was different than the cubit Noah would have used. In Moses' time, a cubit was about 17 inches. Noah came many years before Moses. Noah was only 10 generations from Adam. Noah would have used the Egyptian royal cubit, a little over 20 inches. The Darupinar ship was exactly 300 royal cubits long and 50 royal cubits wide. This location is exactly where the Bible said Noah made landfall. Many people think Noah landed on Mount Ararat, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat is a volcano and has erupted a few times since the days of Noah, as recently as the 1840s. In fact, geologists believe Mount Ararat is a relatively young mountain and probably wasn't there during the flood. The Darupadar location is only a few miles from Mount Ararat. A ground investigation was done. In the area was found about 30 drogue stones. A drogue stone is a heavy rock with a hole at the top. Ropes went through the holes. Then they were hung from the bottoms of ancient ships to stabilize them in rough seas. Why are there anchor stones in the mountains of Ararat? They're 200 miles from the closest ocean, but there they are. Also on the site, the ancient settlement of Nashwan was discovered. Most of the evidence has been lost to treasure hunters, but as recently as the 1970s, there were stone foundations of ancient homes still visible. This is believed to be the first settlement after the flood. The site is so important that there's a huge cemetery in the area. People from all over the world requested to be buried here. Not hundreds of people, not thousands, as many as a million people wanted to be buried at this location. Now all that was left was to examine the boat structure itself. Researchers looked for signs of animal remains. They looked for metal nails. They looked for petrified wood. They found all three. After Darupadar discovered the site of the Ark, there was an earthquake in the area that exposed the hull of an ancient ship. Geologists visited the location and said it's a natural formation, and that was that. But in 1977, biblical researcher Ron Wyatt renewed interest in Noah's Ark. We believe that God has preserved in the earth and under the seas remains of the major events discussed in the Bible physical remains. Over a number of years, Wyatt brought geologists and other scientists to investigate the Darupinar site. Oh, look at that. Oh, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, let me get a close-up of that. Kind of, um, 
You want my hand in there? For yeah, just to point at those little okay. flakes of iron that are coming out, like right there, there and there. <laughs> Metal detectors were brought in and calibrated to search for iron. Hmm. Not only did they find iron, they found it at regular intervals, indicating something man-made. Do you want a measuring tape to measure these things, how far apart they are? The on-site team ran tape along the ground where iron was detected. It was a ship. Ron Wyatt found a metallic object next to the Ark, which had the shape of a large rivet. It was surrounded by what appeared to be an equally large metal washer. Part of the metal was tested. It contained a man-made metal alloy. Ground penetrating radar, or GPR, was used in the 1980s. Regular lines were found beneath the surface. All right, the lines are there! <laughs> the lines are there! This also indicates man-made construction. This data is not, is, does not represent natural geology. It's, it's some man-made structure. This is the West Bulkhead. All right. That was over there. And he walked easterly. Here we start getting the longitudinal bulkheads. Here, 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 here. As a scientist, uh, do you really honestly believe uh, that you have been on the remains of Noah's Ark? I have no, no doubt in my mind. There's, uh, this has to be a man-made structure. It's full of metal. Metal is, uh, has a regular pattern. Uh, the size of the thing, and the shape of the thing is it's almost certainly a, a large boat. A small excavation was done on the side of the structure. Wyatt's team discovered lines of mud that were lighter in color than the surrounding soil. He believed these to be beams from the ship. As recently as 2014, 3D scans were taken of the location. Not only was the shape of a ship found, it had three levels, just as the Ark should. The 3D scan also confirmed the dimensions of the object. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits tall. A perfect match. During one demonstration for the Turkish government, Ron Wyatt pointed to an object seen on radar near the surface. He was given permission to dig it up. It was a piece of petrified wood, deck timber. Other artifacts were found at the site. More petrified wood, pieces of metal, cat hair, even fossilized animal dung. Researchers found evidence of the fence around Noah's house, where he raised livestock. You can see the system of fences here that appears to have been a, a system of corrals and pens. They found the altar he used to make sacrifices to God. They even found the grave of Noah's wife and a stone sarcophagus. Almost immediately after the discovery, grave robbers stole her body and allegedly sold it on the black market for millions of dollars. All this evidence was so compelling that the Turkish government officially claimed this was the place where Noah's Ark landed. There's even a visitor center and the area is open to the public. But if the Ark really has been found, what does that mean? Does that mean everything in the Bible is true? Were there angels, watchers, were there Nephilim? Is the earth really much younger than we thought? And my big question is, is God the angry, vengeful God we read about in the Old Testament? There's evidence of the Ark. There's evidence of the Flood. 
If God punished humanity for being wicked, we should be very careful. We might want to try to be better people. We should be more kind, more honest, more forgiving. God already destroyed humanity once. We're his second try. And you know what they say? Third time's a charm. Noah's Ark, the Great Flood, the Book of Enoch, the Watchers, the Nephilim. We covered a lot today, even aliens. But is any of this true? Well, let's work backwards because that's the easiest way to do this. Ron Wyatt was not an archaeologist. He was a nurse by trade. He claimed to have all the requirements for a master's and a PhD in antiquities, but that wasn't true. He claimed to be a Korean War veteran, and that wasn't true. He claimed to have discovered the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't. I'm always amazed, and again, I don't, I don't hate Ron White. I don't even really dislike him, to tell you the truth. Um, I dislike what he's doing. I, I realize that he's deceived, in my opinion, uh, thousands of people. He said he found the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't. Ordinarily, I don't say anything without I can prove it, because it's rather embarrassing to make a statement and somebody say, well, can you show me some evidence? And I can't. He claimed he found the location where Moses parted the Red Sea. He even said he found evaporated blood of Jesus Christ. He had the blood rehydrated and examined. He said Jesus' blood had 24 chromosomes, 23 to form a baby, and one from the Holy Spirit, which proves the virgin birth. So all of his physical characteristics were determined by his mother's side of the family, her autosomes. His maleness was determined by this one Y that came from the source, not a human male. But this whole thing is a lie. Then they said, this blood is alive. And then they said, whose blood is this? And tears would come in his eyes when he talked about blood dripping down from the cross to the, you know, the mercy seat. I mean, I said, it's the blood of your Messiah. And I don't like seeing God's work so, so grossly misrepresented to um, uh, get funds from people and to get support from people. Ron Wyatt's work is still very popular on the internet, and I can understand why. This is an incredible story. But if you look just a little deeper, you'll find statement after statement from people who are lied to by Wyatt and defrauded out of quite a bit of money. One patron of Wyatt's lost $30,000 on one of these holy adventures. Wyatt said he needed another 10,000. This patron said, only if you take a lie detector test. At first, Ron Wyatt scoffed, but he needed the money. He took the test. The man who administered the test said, and I quote, he failed just about everything except his name. But what about all the evidence? The metal detectors, ground penetrating radar? Well, most of it was faked or cherry picked. The metal detectors used weren't professional. They were purchased from the back of treasure hunting magazines. Modern professional metal detectors have found iron at the site, but it's the same type of iron found in soil all over the area. No trained scientist has ever seen any of the petrified wood or petrified dung or anything like that. The only people who saw these things were Ron or the people paid by Ron. Now the Drogestones are a compelling piece of the story because they are there and they've clearly been there a long time. But the stone is locally quarried. Drogestones from Noah's Ark would have come from Mesopotamia, not the mountains of Turkey. And the boat-shaped formation is probably the result of a mud flow. 
You can see shapes like this all over the area. Now, supporters of Ron Wyatt's theories, and there are a lot of those, have answers for all of this. That the boat was actually higher up the mountain, but traveled down a lava flow. But boats don't float on lava. They burn. They burn real good. But thousands and thousands of people throughout history did and do consider this a holy place. Maybe Noah's Ark was there. I can't prove it wasn't, but I can prove Ron Wyatt was a liar. Now, as to why the CIA kept the photos classified, what was the Cold War? And these were photos from spy planes, and a few of those planes weren't exactly in friendly airspace. After the fall of the Soviet Union, releasing the photos wasn't a problem. Now, the Great Flood. If you follow this channel, you know that I believe that really happened, and I believe it happened at the end of the Younger Dryas. I believe a massive solar event melted the ice caps and created the biggest catastrophe in human history. And if you follow this channel, you also know that the thing I fear most is not nuclear war or civil unrest or pandemics. I fear the sun. If an asteroid is headed our way, we'll see it. And we may even be able to do something about it. And if an asteroid actually hits, I believe the world would come together and all nations would do everything they could to help one another. But a major solar flare or coronal mass ejection? There's nowhere to hide from that not in a mountain cave or deep underground. The heat and radiation would be disastrous to us and our planet. Yeah, we could hide underwater, uh, like the aliens. Now that's true. Water is effective at absorbing radiation. And the deeper you go, the safer you are. And I'm sure the aliens in the ocean know that. Now speaking of aliens, is that what's going on in the Book of Enoch? Most of the flood myths start the same way, with a warning from a godlike figure. And they end the same way with a godlike figure helping restart civilization. Now, I can't definitively prove that this is true. Nobody can. But if we keep pressuring our governments about UAPs and UFOs, we may eventually get some answers. Humanity did take a leap forward in technology many thousands of years ago, and maybe those ancient humans had help. Enoch physically goes to a place that sounds like a spaceship. The prophet Elijah also talks about riding a chariot of fire. What? I thought you were going to sing it again. Well, now I don't want to. Elijah talks about riding a chariot of fire over the earth with a human-like being. Elijah is amazed by the sound of the vehicle and how fast it moves. Other cultures and religions have similar stories. Muhammad ascends to heaven and meets Allah before returning to earth. In Hinduism, Arjuna is taken to heaven and lives there for a few years before coming back down. There are many more of these myths. But are they myths? Maybe these things did actually happen, but they're written down as myths because the technology is so far ahead of what existed at the time. Maybe these were visitations and abductions. There's a tribe in West Africa called the Dogon, and there are about 100,000 of them who mostly live in caves and cliffs. They're still a primitive people. The Dogon religion says that long ago, they were visited by aliens from the Sirius star system. These aliens told the Dogon that they helped the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Sumerians with their civilizations. But what's really amazing is the Dogon are aware of the star Sirius B, which the tribe calls Potolo. Sirius B is invisible to the naked eye. It was first discovered in 1862. But the Dogon people had no telescopes. They still don't. Yet not only were they aware of the star Sirius B, they knew it was a white dwarf companion star to the much brighter Sirius A. 
The Dogon knew the length of Sirius B's orbit in years. They knew the shape of its orbit. They knew it was a dense star. They relayed all this information to a visiting anthropologist in the 1930s. They even said there's a third star in the Sirius system, but there wasn't, until there was. In 1995, a study concluded that a third companion star exists. More recent studies aren't so sure, but the Dogon people are. Allegedly, the Dogon were also aware of Jupiter's moons and Saturn's rings. Now, skeptics like to poke holes in the Dogon story, and I think that's fine. Like the Dogon were wrong about the number of Jupiter's moons. But they were right about Sirius B. The story of Enoch seems to be based on ancient Sumerian stories, like a lot of the Bible is. When people talk about the Book of Enoch, they're referring to what's officially called First Enoch, because there are three books. Biblical scholars consider the books of Enoch pseudopigrapha, that is, a biblical work that falsely claims authorship by a biblical character. That doesn't mean the books of Enoch weren't known or weren't important. In fact, First Enoch is quoted in Jude 14 through 15. Enoch was known and was important, but the book is not considered inspired by God and therefore is apocryphal and not part of canon. Still a page turner. Oh yeah, it's a good read. Now, some parts of Enoch are said to have been written later to expand on stories from the Bible, like the birth of Noah and Enoch's visit to heaven. These were interesting characters and people wanted to learn more. So someone, or many someones, we don't know who, just wrote more. It's like Bible fan fiction. It's exactly like that. But different religions and denominations are going to have different interpretations. Remember, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church says the book is canon, and that church has been around for almost 3,000 years. Some Christians think reading the book is heresy, a crime against the church. But most scholars consider the Book of Enoch an important text that gives additional insight into the lives and beliefs of the people living at the time. Honestly, whether the Book of Enoch is canon or not, that's not important to me. It's an interesting academic discussion. As you know, I'm not religious, but I am fascinated by and have great respect for religions, all religions. I enjoy the stories, and for the most part, I think they teach good lessons. I'm more into fishes and loaves than fire and brimstone, but that's just my taste. But I know I'm going to hear it in the comments. Every time I do a religious story, I get attacked. In the comments, there's going to be people screaming at me in all caps to take Jesus into my heart or I'm going to hell. If that's what you believe, that's okay. I don't believe that. I don't know what happens after we die. I'm inclined to say nothing, just black. But there's a big piece of my heart that really wants to be wrong. Because when I finally pass on and walk down that tunnel, if I'm greeted by family and friends long past, and I find myself standing at the pearly gates, the first words out of my mouth are going to be, thank God. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. My name is AJ. That's Hecklefish. Peace be unto the human. Grateful am I for thine eyes that have watched and thine ears that have heard. This has been The Y Files. If you had fun or learned anything, do him a favor. Subscribe, comment, like, share. Hitting the buttons really helps us out. And like most topics we cover on the channel, today's was recommended by you. So if there's a story you'd like to see or learn more about, go to thewifiles.com slash tips. And remember, The Y Files is also a podcast. Twice a week, I post deep dives into the stories we cover here on the channel. I also post episodes that wouldn't be allowed on the channel. It's called The Y Files Operation Podcast, and it's available everywhere you get your podcasts. Now, if you need more Y Files in your life, because who doesn't, check out our Discord server. There are thousands of people, I think we're up to 35,000 members. 
Well, there's thousands of people on there 24-7, and they're into the same weird stuff that we are. It's a great community, it's a lot of fun, and it's free to join. Now, special thanks to our patrons who make this channel possible. Every episode is dedicated to you, and as you know, I could not do this without your support, so thank you. And if you'd like to support the channel, we'd love you to become a member on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you get access to perks like you see the videos early with no commercials, you get access to merch only available to members, plus you get two private live streams every week just for you. Another great way to support the channel is grab something from the Wi-File store. Come forth and partake in our wares, for in your hands they shall find purpose, and through your stewardship, their journey shall be fulfilled. What does that mean? Grab a Hecklefish t-shirt, a fistable mug, or a deck of go Hecklefish cards, or a hooky, or one of those, not a hooky, a hoodie, or one of those squeezy stuffed animal Hecklefish talking now fish toy. That's going to do it. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and know that you are appreciated. A secret code inside the Bible said I was I love my UFOs and paranormal fun As well as music, so I'm singing like I should But then another conspiracy theory becomes the truth, my friends And it never ends, no it never ends I got stuck inside Mel's home with MK Ultra I'll be an only true aware Did Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing alone On a film set with the shadow people there The Roswell aliens just fought the smiling man I'm told And his name was cold And I can't believe Secret city underground Mysterious number stations Planet Circle 2 Project Stargate And what the Dark Watchers found In a simulation Don't you worry though The Black Knight Satellite It's